Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Welcome to another episode of the Theater Podcast, intimate personal conversations with theater's biggest names. I'm Alan Seals. And I'm Jillian Hockman, producer extraordinaire. Extraordinaire. Hi, Jillian. Hello. This episode is with Jared Spector, who's currently starring as Sonny Bono in The Share Show. And uh, I have to say, is just phenomenal. I can't say enough good things about his performance in this show. Yeah, he, he is fantastic. And you two dig deep in this episode. Oh, yes, we do. We actually ran out of time because we were we were being we were chatting before before he had to run to a show and we just ran out of time digging into 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 his past and and uh, he actually gets really deep into into mental health, which I I love. I absolutely love when when people uh are open and comfortable enough to talk about that because I think so much of us aren't able to. It's nice to see successful people talking about struggles and nice to hear that people that we admire go through the same things that we do and have the similar um, paths or are trying to figure out what they want to do. And it's it's comforting to know you may not be alone in this. I think so many people in the world really don't, either know what they want to do ever in their life or or they kind of think they do and then they get there and they're like, oh, yeah, this isn't what I thought it would be. And I, I really enjoy, especially on this podcast, it's kind of come up a couple times, but especially with Jared here, we, we do dive deep, that that uh, he went to, to college for finance after being his Broadway debut as a kid, right? And then, and because he thought that's what he wanted to do. And he gets there and just cannot stand it, comes back, doesn't know, still doesn't know what he wants to do after he leaves college. And then, you know, found his way into these amazing character roles that that we know him for now. And I, you know, it's, it's, I applaud him for taking the chance and realizing, you know, listening to his gut and, and getting over the struggles that he was yeah. having internally. Yeah. And it's okay to change your mind and to say, I'm not cut out for this, or I tried it and it's not for me. And find a different path. And even if you have to float around for a little bit, try everything, be open. And that's what makes you a better actor, a better performer, and a better person. Mm-hmm. And it's very clear through Jared Spector that he is a great person and a great performer. And just so cute. <laughs> <laughs> yes, everybody, please enjoy this episode with Jared Spector. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Today's guest made his Broadway debut as Gavroche in the original production of Les Mis and went on to play a record-breaking 1,500 performances as Frankie Valli in Jersey Boys on Broadway. 
He's been seen on national tours of Les Mis and Jersey Boys and in the off-Broadway productions of Hamlet. He was nominated for both the Tony and Outer Critics Circle Awards for his performance as Barry Mann in Beautiful, the Carol King musical, and can now be seen in the Cher Show as Sonny Bono. Welcome, Jared Spector. Thank you for, for uh, talking with me My today. My pleasure. Thank you, Alan, for having me, man. No problem. Uh-oh. It's all right. Come on in. Waters have arrived. Hallelujah. Thank you. You need them for these long talks. That's right. Um, so you have a show tonight, so we'll we'll get started here. But as we always do on this podcast, we talk about your your humble upbringings, your standard standard beginnings here. Uh, where were you born? What kind of child were you? I was born at Einstein Hospital in Philadelphia. <laughs> so specific. <laughs> so, well, you wanted humble. <laughs> yeah, it was. Uh, I was born in Philadelphia. Um, I grew up. My parents had me singing at a really young age. I mean, I guess that's sort of what we're talking about here, right? Is how you start, how do I end it, how I ended up where I am now. So my mother, I'm the youngest of four children, but my siblings are much older than much. My siblings are older than me, seven, eight, nine years older than me, which when you're an infant is quite a bit. So mm -hmm. uh, I was sort of a, an only child and also not. I had the, sort of the best of both worlds. So I spent a lot of time, you know, riding around in the car with my mom and she noticed that I would learn uh, radio commercials and memorize them. Back in the day when there weren't so many channels and there weren't so many ads, you could actually remember them. And so uh, I used to sing along and she thought, you know, cute, right? And then she taught me uh, Sunny Side of the Street and Me and My Shadow and Side by Side. She taught me a few songs that we sang for my father, who then was impressed that his two-year-old could sing. And they took me to uh, a local vocal coach in Philadelphia. At two? At two and a half. Wow. Yeah. And that gentleman, his name was Russell Faith, said, he's actually uh, Andrea McArdle's voice coach. And he said, well, there's this local TV show called the Al Alberts Showcase. It was this local variety show uh, in Philadelphia that was on uh, weekend mornings. And he said, go over there and, you know, audition for them. And so I, we did. And uh, I became a Teeny Bopper was the name of the segment on the show where, you know, children would sing and tell Uncle Al a joke mm -hmm. every week then for the next three and a half years uh, before I went on to Star Search and other things. Wow. So <laughs> and Star Search was age six. Yes. And and what was the process like to get on that? Um, I, I mean, honestly, I can't remember every detail of it, but I do. There was definitely an audition in New York. And then... I think that was it. I think it was one It was one or two auditions, but I remember not flying into Los Angeles until I was actually going to be on the show. So uh, I remember that there was a, an executive producer named Sam Riddle. He was there and he okayed me. And then, you know, we sort of got the got the green light to go to LA. And, it, and it's so funny because it's it actually is a, it's a pretty significant memory for me, but I can't imagine that it took that long for all of it to happen because there were sometimes when they they all they uh, you know they they filmed on Tuesdays and Thursdays, so this whole thing. I mean, I was on for five episodes, and then I came back for like the semifinals or whatever, and I lost both times to the same girl, Countess Vaughn, uh, and she was like Whitney Houston in a ten-year-old's body. It really wasn't <laughs> fair, and I was six. I just I just couldn't I couldn't compete. Six uh, versus ten, that's a big difference. It's really big difference. Yeah. She had a cannon of a voice. I mean, it was it wasn't yeah. fair. Yeah. <laughs> and and so then how did you get how did you get to to New York and making your Broadway debut at age nine in Les Mis? Well, I put myself on the train and no jokes. Uh you know, uh nobody does that, right? You know, your parents have to everyone always asks, you know, or your parents like stage parents. Is it like, you know, 
Mama Rose. <laughs> it's not like that, but certainly no six, seven, eight, nine-year-old does it of their own accord from Philadelphia to New York. So yes, my parents took me to New York. Um, I started auditioning when I, actually my first audition for Lame is Rob was for the tour that came through Philadelphia when I was seven. So that would be like 1998, mm. excuse me, 1988. <laughs> like, or 98 second. if I'm in my fantasy <laughs> world. 1988, I was seven and the tour came through when I was just too young. And then a couple years later, same thing happened. The, the tour of Les Mis was coming through Philly again, and my parents took me to an audition. Now, this one I do remember, it was hell on earth in retrospect. I mean, I don't think I thought it was hell on earth at the time, but as an adult, thinking about walking into like a ballroom at in some hotel in Center City, Philly, with God, I don't know, however many hundreds of kids and all of their stage parents, like it really is a nightmare. And, uh, and they give you a number, you know, and they mm -hmm. brand you like your cattle. And then they call you in one at a time. And I remember getting through that particular process. And then the callback was in New York. And it was a much smaller group. It was a much smaller room. And it was me and however, you know, a dozen other kids or whatever and their parents. And I was the first one called into the room to audition. And I did my little thing. And then my <laughs> they called my parents into the room, which I don't, I think that's unusual. I mean, it certainly is unusual, would be unusual now. Uh, but they called my parents in and said, okay, congratulations. Jared has the job. Here are three tickets. Go enjoy the show tonight. Just like that. Just like that. And then as we were about to leave, they said, wait, wait, wait. Um, do me a favor. Don't celebrate on the way out because we don't want everyone else to know that the job's already gone. And what? I think about that. Every audition I go on forever. Oh, I mean, every no. time I'm in a room, because it's always possible that they've actually on the spot handed the job to the person right before you. And then that asshole isn't allowed to say anything on the way out. <laughs> and so you're just standing there and going, I mean, I, you know, I try to have good faith in things, but yeah, it's, that's, that's how that happened. Oh gosh. That's yeah. something that you never shake. No, yeah. never. I mean, even though it, it was good for me in that moment. Yeah. Uh, that you know, it it actually it's uh, <laughs> it's a scary thing to know. Oh, geez, yeah, I, I, that makes me not want to ever audition again. Well, I mean, like, there are many things that would make you not want to audition. I mean, auditioning in 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 general is just it's just asking to be judged. I mean, I, I know there are lots of people, and there are books written about this. How many books about how to enjoy the audition, how to do the audition, and. I personally have never quite mastered the, the the mental side of it, of making it feel like a performance opportunity or, you know, well, even if you don't get it, you make a good impression. I mean, those are really good motivating things and you always want to do the best work that you can. And I enjoy analyzing scripts and performing and all those things. So there is some of that, but I don't know how you, I don't know how you separate yourself out from the reality that you're asking for a job and you're either going to get it or you're not. And there might be reasons far outside your control why you get it or don't get it. And yet it's still so hard to shake that very personal feeling. Uh, you know, it's just, uh, it's a hard life. Even, even when you're, even when you meet with some level of, of success, it's still a hard, it's a hard life. Yeah. 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 Cause you're putting yourself out there. I mean, it's personal, right? If you connect with your character, if you, if you find the emotional connection and then all of a sudden you don't get the part. You know, I can I can understand through personal experience why you're like, oh, did, you know, did I am I not good enough because I put myself into that? Absolutely. The, the more that you want it, the more that you like it, and the, and you know, and the more you do exactly what you're saying, like indulge in this character mm -hmm. and dive in. It's you know, the stakes can't help but go up a little bit. It's like, oh my goodness, I don't want to let my imagination run away with the possibility of what it would be like to get this role and do it, and yet. 
how can I not? How could yeah. you not? You know, it's really yeah. hard to control that. I mean, that is kind of the art of surviving in, you know, in, in this world is to figure out how to, how to deal with that. So you got, you got Gavroche. Yes. And you were nine. And what was it like for you being a kid on Broadway? I mean, I, I definitely didn't know the significance of it. I, you know, I was, I was a child. I didn't know. I, you know, it was super, I mean, it was incredibly fun, right? I mean, my, my, costume were actual rags. My makeup was you burn a cork with a light. First of all, I just was, I was, got to play with a lighter. So you burn a cork with a lighter and rub it on your face. That's makeup when you're getting, when you're getting rushed and you put like actual grease in your hair and you're good to go. So, and then you get to run around on stage and like you're the only kid for the most part. I mean, there are, you know, they're, they're the girls who play Cosette, but dur- during the back half of the show, you're the only kid mm-hmm. with a whole bunch of fun, loving, actor adults who are, you know, throwing you around and you run around and get to play with a fake gun. And I mean, it's, and then die. I mean, it's, it's just like a dream role. I, I wish I could play Gavroche now. Um, my voice might be high enough. So that's cool. Uh, <laughs> yeah. The way you describe, describe that, it seems like every kid's like perfect, perfect imagination. Oh, it's, it's the best. Yeah. It's the best. So that part, I remember being quite a bit of fun. I mean, I do remember my first moment going on actually is uh, it, it's 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 very specific because it's right before. I mean, if you know Les Mis, and many people do, it's right. It's that it's when Paris comes. It's when Valjean and and Cosette disappear, and then they show up in Paris, and you, you have to sneak on stage in the dark with with all this smoke billowing on stage. At least in the production that I was in, and everyone is sort of moaning because they're homeless. You know, they're like beggars on the streets of Paris. And it's fair. And so you have all these people moaning and you're like a little kid sneaking on the stage in the dark and covering myself with a blanket with all this smoke and then having to get up and run down and start singing, you know, to 1500 people at the Imperial Theater. I mean, it was, uh, it's, it's quite an experience that I like viscerally remember, despite the fact that it was 29 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I- I mean, did you still feel like you had a normal life outside of theater at that point? And or after that, did you did you want to continue? Did you still audition? I guess did your parents take you to more <laughs> auditions, or do you like I need a middle school experience now? No, I definitely had a normal life outside of the show. Uh, even like, I did the show in Philadelphia and in Chicago and on Broadway and in all the, all those cases. I mean, when I did the show in Philly and in New York. I used to miss Wednesdays because uh, of at school because of a matinee. But for the for the other four days of the week, I was at school and I did my normal work- workload uh, because it was elementary school and mm-hmm. how much work actually is there, right? So, uh, and when you're Gavroche, you're only on four out of the eight shows a week, so I was able to actually do homework while I was at the theater. Um, and then when that was over, and I sort of grew out of it because I think the cutoff was like forty six inches. If you're more than forty six, you can't. You know, the Nigel Ross can't pick you up on his shoulder anymore, or whatever it is. So you you know you can't. You can't be in it for that long. And then I definitely still auditioned for things, uh, but I I definitely had a, a bunch of years there where I was just in school, like mm-hmm. normal. Uh, and it wasn't until I actually booked this sitcom pilot when I was 14 years, 14 or 15 years old. And that was the next big thing in my life that sort of took me to this crossroad of what am I going to do? Because I was, <laughs> you know... I, we went out to LA and and filmed this sitcom pilot that for NBC it had uh, it had Peter Boyle you know Young Frankenstein mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. everybody loves Raymond Peter Boyle was the grandfather and this amazing actor from The Sopranos uh, Michael Rispoli was the father I mean it was this really cool and I got to sing and play the piano on the show it was called The Larsons of Las Vegas and the father was a professional gambler and this was about three or four years before like the Texas Hold'em 
craze happened in this country. And the feedback, even though the show was quite funny, was ultimately that after we filmed the pilot and test audiences, they didn't like that the father was a gambler. That was the big smack against the show. And I swear, if it had come out five years later, it would have been a hit, but it came out, you know, that's when that's when they put up the money for it. And I remember being a kid and getting this call. I was alone at home when I got this call that the pilot wasn't going forward. In the meantime, we were supposed to have moved to Los Angeles and this whole new life was going to begin. And my siblings were old enough. They were in college or out of college by then. And we could pick up and move to LA. It was it was doable. Yeah. And then this happened and none of it was going, then this sort of failure of the pilot, none of it was going to happen. And I remember having this moment of being like, I am not mature enough to handle this. I am, I am a, um, a little boy, really. I mean, you know, at that, at that, in terms of maturity, and I, you were fourteen. I, yeah, I was fourteen or yeah. fifteen. I mean, something like that. I was in eighth or ninth grade. It was you know, it was I was so young, and I, that was the moment when I said, I can't, I can't. I don't want to audition anymore. I don't want to go to New York or LA. I don't want to do anything. I just want to be a kid. And wow, that, yeah. So that lasted a little while. Well, I was going to say it didn't last very long because <laughs> <laughs> you you went to uh, you went to Princeton. Yeah. And what did you what did you what degree did you get from Princeton? Right. So I didn't get a degree from Princeton. Uh here's what happened. I, <laughs> Tell me the story. <laughs> here's the story. Well, I I had this sort of you know, I had it in my mind that being in this particular industry uh was a life of uncertainty and pain. I I did not have a good relationship with New York. I didn't want to be here. I thought it was loud and dirty and scary and awful. That was the impression well, right. I had. I mean, it, and it is, but I didn't love it for those reasons. I hated it for those reasons right. when I was a kid and I just didn't want to be here. And I, and Los Angeles was so far away. You know, it just, I wanted to be with my friends and I, I wanted, you know, so I worked real hard in school and I, and I went to Princeton. Now, all throughout this time, I'm still singing. I mean, my voice changed. So I had a, a moment where I didn't enjoy singing that much because it started to hurt, but then it came back and, I never stopped singing or, or, you know, being in music. I still did the musicals at my school. I just didn't want to do anything professionally. And I certainly, when I was applying to all of these colleges, I still used Broadway and my interest in musicals and the musicals at their particular school as a way to get into the school. But when I went to Princeton, I studied economics. And I took Chinese in my sophomore year. And my idea was I was going to be and I, I'd say this with quotes, we can't say like a regular person, which is the dumbest concept. There is nothing, there is no such thing as a regular person, but that's what I thought that I wanted to be, you know, someone not in this industry. And uh, meantime, I did, I, I was fine in school, but it was just so hard to keep up because I didn't really want to do it. I was sort of staring down the barrel of a life and career that did not interest me. And just because I could get by in the classes and I thought, oh, I could ultimately do this, I guess, if I put my, if I had my heart in it, it doesn't mean that I should do it. What did you think your degree was going to be in? Economics. Yeah. I'd like finance. That was my, that was my trajectory. That's what I thought I wanted to do. And uh, meantime, Princeton has this amazing, it's called the Triangle Club. It's this, it's like the oldest musical theater group in in all of the universities, I believe. And it had like F. F Scott Fitzgerald was in it and Brooke Shields. And it was this really cool thing. And I spent all of my time and energy and effort there because that's what I really wanted to do. Meanwhile, I wasn't getting any credit for that. And I was killing myself keeping up with my classes when you're in the school with like, you know, the upper 1% of everyone who's brilliant and you think you're smart and then you get there and you're like, well, I'm not that smart. Uh, and, and also they loved it and I didn't, and it was just, it was just, you know, it became too much. And, uh, I had to leave after two years and try to figure out what the hell I was going to do with myself. Uh, my parents were understanding. I moved home and, uh, I sang for a wedding and bar mitzvah band for a year. 
<laughs> yep. What was the name of that? Uh, oh, gosh. I really hope it's a good pun. Oh, God. No, it's... Uh, oh, God. How about tequila? Liz- <laughs> oh, I wish. No, it was called... Oh, I remember. It was called Cutting Edge Orchestras. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Not, 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 as good not as quite... Tequila. No, no. Not nearly the dad joke that Have a Tequila would have been. Uh, so, yeah. So, I did that for a year and trying to figure out what the hell I was going to do with myself. And I definitely... I mean, I mean, I was depressed and I, you know, I couldn't... My, my second semester of my sophomore year at, at Princeton was not good. I mean, I just was having this kind of breakdown because my body was telling me one thing and my brain and heart were telling me other things. And I just couldn't, I was like, you know, everything was, the wires got crossed and I sort of zapped myself because I, I, I just was in a place I didn't want to be doing something I didn't want to do, but I was also living this lie because this other half of me at school was doing this thing that I was very much thriving in. And I just I couldn't, I I didn't have the heart to tell my parents that I needed to leave what had just been ranked like the number one school in the country, whatever the hell. That didn't matter. I didn't care. It just, it's a hard thing to tell your folks. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, yeah. So by the time that year at home was was a learning experience of trying to figure out what am I going to do? Meanwhile, all my friends are still, you know, are jun- now juniors in college and they're moving on with their lives. And I'm like, what the hell am I going to do? And uh, that following summer, I moved to New York with my with my two closest friends. And uh, and started and fell in love with the city and decided, okay, I'm going to take performance classes and I'll figure out what to do. I'll just take whatever classes and play the piano and, you know, sing and whatever, and I'll figure something out. And uh, it, that was the best decision I made, you know, was sort of facing my fear of being in this city and doing it with, with you know, with best friends who could make it fun to be mm-hmm. here uh, and take advantage of everything that the city offers in a way that I obviously didn't when I was nine uh, right. <laughs> I hated it so much. And so that was a whole different, uh, a whole different dynamic. And then it became fun Then it became exciting. And, you know, being here was a joy and, uh, I started auditioning and, uh, that didn't really lead to a whole hell of a lot. I, but I did end up at, uh, a really, uh, hardcore theater program that, uh, at the Atlantic theater like company. Theater, yeah. yeah. So I did that. I, you know, I went there for like two and a half years cause I realized i didn't know how to act. I mean, I just had no training in that area. I could sing because I had always sung and mm-hmm. I had always had lessons, but I didn't know anything about acting technique, not really. And so two and a half years of that was a, a whole different thing. And then when I came out of there, of course, I was like, well, now I'm only going to do Chekhov, Ibsen, Shaw, and Shakespeare, you know, and Odette's, and I'm not going to. And then, of course, you know, I was I, I, I was cast as Frankie Valley. That's funny. It, it um Wesley Taylor, too, came out of uh, North Carolina School of the Arts. It has a similar story that, that reminds me of this, that, you know, he came out and he was, like, classically trained in doing Shakespeare, and his first, his Broadway debut was Rock of Ages. Rock of Ages, right, of course. Like, yeah, of course, because that makes sense. Right. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> listen, I think whatever, everybody, if you're, if you're playing a principal, well, if you're playing a speaking role in a Broadway show, you have to know how to deliver lines. So all of that training is, comes in handy, irrespective of, what you thought you were going to end up doing or right. how highbrow you thought the scripts were going to be. And you you can't reasonably expect to do Chekhov, Ibsen, Shaw, and Shakespeare for the rest of your life, uh, especially if you want to be on Broadway because it's a lot of musicals and a lot of the great work are musicals. So, you know, I mean, you, 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 and one of my smartest teachers that I really enjoy, like flex every muscle you have. Don't limit yourself based on some preconceived notion of what you want to do, what you think you can do. Like, try everything. And if you if you can play an instrument, great. If you can dance, great. If you can act, great. And if you can sing, definitely great. I'll do all the things. And so, you know, of course, 
I was expecting to do Shakespeare soliloquies, and instead it was like, "Hey, Tommy, fuck you." You know, what I mean, that it was a very, it was a big tangent. <laughs> right. I I I want to go back to something you said that that I I was impressed that you said at fourteen you had the wherewithal to to say like, "Man, I'm not equipped to do this. I don't want to do it anymore." And then at twenty, I presume nineteen or twenty, yep. like halfway through college, you're like, "All right, this isn't what I want to do." Uh, you you're emotionally conflicted. You know, it wasn't like I'm not getting good grades. I I just can't do it anymore. But you said you're doing very well, and I I personally, me, I couldn't, I wouldn't have had had the maturity to do that. I don't even think I would now. At 20, you're saying, or at the or at 14? At 38 right now. <laughs> but, uh, but no, at at 20, like at 14, definitely, I would have been like, oh, okay, you know, like Broadway. That's kind of cool. I'll give it a shot. Um, and then at 20, I, rem- I remember being, I went to, I got a computer science degree. Okay. And the similar sort of thing. I was just like, well, I'm okay at it. Or I'm great. I'm good. Got good grades. I'm going to do this and I'll see it out. And then I got my degree and I'm like, oh, I don't want to do this anymore. So I went through with it. Yeah. Um, but no, I'm, I'm, that's very impressive that you were like, mm, no, I don't want to do this anymore. Well, I don't want to, you know, let's, let me revise the story a little bit to something closer to truth. I, I don't want to, <laughs> well, I don't want to mislead you and feel like I, oh, you know, I absolutely, I stood up and I told my parents this, that, and the other thing. What, what happened was that I was falling apart emotionally. I think, you know, when I was 14, I did have that sort of revelation that I'm, I'm mature, I was mature enough to know that I was too immature to, to handle it. Right. So, I wasn't, I mean, I was, in some ways I, I was advanced, in, but in other ways I was behind. So I, I guess I could sort of recognize that. And then my, that second half of my sophomore year at Princeton that, you know, I don't know about you, but when I was in school, especially, you know, middle school, high school, whatever, you do your work because you're told. Mm-hmm. I, you know, this is what, these are your classes. You take them, you do your best that you can. And I sort of always had that, that reservoir of, okay, they told me to, so I'll do it. And that ran out for me in the middle of sophomore year. I mean, the, it was a combination of the of getting closer to real life and being like, well, what am I actually doing? Like, how do these classes? These this is in English now, right? This is these are um, supposed to be professional application classes that I'm taking to get toward my actual real life. It's not you know the the liberal arts education that you get in high school. So it wasn't so much just for fun, not that high school is for fun, but you know what I'm saying? Like you sort of just do it, you get an education. Mm-hmm. And this felt very much like I was headed towards something and I I just fell apart. And I there were days where I could not get out of bed and I couldn't go to class. So it wasn't as simple as I made the decision and told my parents. It was really hard. I mean, it was a it was it was very much a breakdown. I mean, I I I got caught for all intents and purposes by my parents after sort of eluding this truth for a long time. I, I mean, I remember, I mean, this is a real confession, but I remember like a, a letter coming from from Princeton, like sort of giving my parents a heads up that something was going on. And I made sure I was home to take them, they, to, you know, take it out of the mail and make sure that they didn't get it. Oh. And, uh, you know, I mean, I was not an idiot. I was deceptive, but, it, you know, but it was also that just made the whole thing so much harder living this sort of duality. I mean, my girlfriend at the time, she did the best that she could with me, but she wasn't emotionally equipped to handle what I was going through. And uh, so that fell apart too. My, you know, I mean, and when you're in high school, you're in some you know, relationship from 16 to 20. It's like your whole world and that was falling apart too. You know, it's just all these things kind of fell apart all at once until I was, uh, you know, a bit of a puddle, which is, I had to go home. I mean, I could have gone back to school. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was absolutely a path for me to go, but I just, I couldn't, I couldn't do it. I, I couldn't handle it. Yeah. I, yeah. I've talked to a lot of people on this podcast now and I, I, I feel like, a requirement to being a lead on Broadway is to have some sort of uh, 
having dealt with depression or or some sort of emotional breakdown at some point. Oh yeah, there there are so many people, and and I mean, I, gosh, I feel like I repeat myself every time. This comes up a lot in these interviews in these podcasts, and there's people that that they just have they have the they're they're more in touch with their their own emotional state, mm-hmm. and I guess that's what I was trying to say earlier. Is is I was not me personally, like I was not aware of myself enough to know like, you know what, this is tearing me apart on the inside, but like I'm, I'm covering it up, yeah. but I, I'm far enough away from it that it's not bothering me. Whereas someone with your talent and your ability to connect with a character and your ability to express yourself and your ability to really bring true acting out, the truly successful, great people, they have, they, you, by default, you are dealing with your emotions at a deeper level than most people are. See, what's funny about what you just said is it seems like you're the one who has the skill though. That ability to separate out, okay, this is what I have to do even though that's how I feel and I'm just going to sort of put my head down and continue is a skill in and of itself that I that I guess I had for a while but in that moment I no longer could like that is what drove me crazy. Man. It's that split and I didn't I couldn't do it anymore. The thing that you're talking about. You know what I mean? Yeah, and Literally, I'm like, I'm looking away, think I'm getting very in, inside my head right now. Like, you just blew my mind. <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> Grass is always greener. Like, Jesus, I, I am. It, it's the same thing that that I've gone through in, in you know the rejection and um and wanting to be good enough. And so, I guess for fear yeah. of being rejected and not being good enough, I I never allow myself to connect at a deep enough level to be good enough. So I'm just okay sabotaging myself. Oh, okay. Does that make sense? Yes, it sure does. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's funny that, yes, I think that you have to have, you don't have to have an emotional break to be in this business, but it is funny. I I went to to the Atlantic Theater Company, which was founded by David Mamet and William H. Macy. And I remember Mamet coming, uh, they would come back and teach master classes every now and again. As you can imagine, like William Macy was the nicest guy. Oh man, he was inspiring and lovely. And he, you know, and that's not to say that Mamet wasn't just in a very different way. Mamet's brain is genius. He was he would come up with, you know, if you if you studied uh, any of these methods, you know, your actions and things, and you sort of have to analyze a scene and his ability to break down a scene and put into his very specific language and a way that you can connect to it, it w- is unparalleled and uncanny. But he also said something like, yeah, you know, if none of you had fucked up childhoods, you're not going to make it. Like you're not it's just not going to be interesting to watch. And you're like, "Oh shit. Well, I had nice parents. Does that mean I should, I should oh, just no. leave?" <laughs> I had no pain to get into. I, I know, I had no pain. I mean, I had, you know, I had had my sort of late childhood quote right. pain, but I didn't, I didn't have a fucked up childhood, I guess. Uh, so I created one for myself when I was a little older. Wow. Yeah, that, that's that's incredible. I, I'm I'm glad, and thank you for talking about that. I know like a lot of people don't like talking about mental health, especially. And I mean, there's no shame in it. I don't. There you know, shouldn't be. There, I was 18, 19, 20. Like, if anyone thinks less of me or anybody else for going through it, I, you know, and anybody goes through, frankly, at any age, but certainly when you're a kid and unprepared for it, you know, go fuck yourself because life is hard and it's not what happens to you; it's the way that you deal with it. I think you know, and being honest with yourself, finding help finding a way out of it and then figuring out a way to not let it happen again, you know, learning the tools mm-hmm. to not let it happen again. And when I feel anything, if I ever again felt anything like that creeping up, I would be aware of it. I would be ready for it. So, you know, I mean, there's no shame in any of it. I, I, I don't think there certainly shouldn't be. I don't think anymore. I, I used to think, yeah, because yeah. my parents didn't talk about it. They still kind of don't, especially my my mother like shies away from anything real. Yeah. Uh-huh. A, like, and so, you know, I'm working on that with her. So, mom, if you're listening, let's talk. 
<laughs> so let's get back to shows, huh? Jersey Boys. <laughs> yes. Um, Jersey Boys. 1,500 performances. Six over six years. That's incredible. Uh, like, what kept you going with Frankie Valley for so long? A couple things. I started the show on the road. Uh, so I did, well, not on the road. I did the show in San Francisco for a year. So the, the carrot was what's the next thing. And then they gave me the Chicago company. So like mm-hmm. I went from one place to the other and then I did the show there for a year. And then the carrot while I was in Chicago was Broadway. Then I got to Broadway. And then why do you stay? Well, it was the recession. Every show on Broadway was, cl- I mean, a lot of them were closing. I mean, just things couldn't last, right? I mean, I remember when we were, uh, Hairspray closed while I was in Jersey Boys. You know, like big shows were closing, let alone new ones that just couldn't hang on. Mm-hmm. And I remember, if you pay attention to like the Broadway box office grosses, it's actually, the biggest shows actually made more money or stayed at 100% because anyone who was going to spend the money was going to do the sure bet, like Wicked and Lion mm-hmm. King and Jersey Boys, sort of this, the mainstays. And, I, you know, I was looking around at people who were struggling for jobs and I was like, you know, in my late 20s and making good money, I was like, I'm going to leave this. I, I wasn't going to leave for no reason. And I was petrified to leave and, and be completely unemployed. Mm. I also just, for what it's worth, you know, I went in for things and I just didn't book them for, you know, one reason or another. And I think that's part of the thing is you do with, you do something for a long time and if it's very specific, then people assume that's the thing that you do. That's the thing that you are. That snapshot they get of you in those couple of hours, that's all that you are that encompasses all of your talent. And so that was, you know, I've certainly fought against that in pretty much every role I've ever done. Because I remember when I was in Jersey Boys, every time I would go into any room, it was, well, he's too Frankie Valley, he's too Italian, he's too dark, he's too whatever, too Jersey, whatever. And then I did Barry Mann, who is also a, a Northeast city musician, but, you know, Jewish and neurotic and funny. And then he's like, it's too funny, it's too light, it's too Jewish. It's and you're like, dude, I can't, whatever you do, you can't win. Because yeah. everyone just assumes that that's the thing, that whatever the last thing you did, that's what you are. And that's, you know, that's just a reality that you often have to deal with if you're not, you know, Brad Pitt. Right, which neither of us are. Right. Um, yeah, so beautiful, beautiful the musical, Barry Mann, Jersey Boys, Frankie Valley, now Sonny Bono in The Share Show. Yeah. Uh, uh, how did you get connected with 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 Chair Show? How did you get this role? So, uh, about three, a little over three years ago, my wife Kelly Barrett and I did uh, a show at Fifty Four Below about musical married couples. It was while I was in Beautiful because you know we were we were listening to Carol King and her you know and, and the story of her and Jerry Goff and her ex husband and Barry Mann who I played and his wife Cynthia Weil who are still together and it was this wonderful like oh they made it but they didn't and so we looked at all these other couples and we sort of did a whole show about it and of course Sonny and Cher. And so I listened, my, my wife is, we're very thorough. And we watched, of course, every single possible episode of the Sonny and Cher comedy hour. Yeah. So every, every one of their openings where they come in and do a little song and then they do their little spiel with their dialogue and their very specific rhythms and cadences and their, you know, their dynamic. And then they end with a song and that's, so we watched all of them. And then a year later, I got a call from my agent that I had a, an offer to do a reading of a new musical about Cher. The writer was Rick Ellis, who was the same writer of Jersey Boys. That's how, in my mind, I'm assuming I was, you know, I was I was brought into this project. And then, you know, when you when you're in a project like that from the beginning and it's a reading, your audition for all intents and purposes is the reading itself. So thankfully I was okayed mm-hmm. at the end of those couple of weeks by Cher herself and I was able to stay with the project going forward. But uh that's how I got into it. But it was great because when I first got the when I first got the offer, I was like, well, man, I've done so much of this work already. Uh, just kind of for fun, and so now here we are. Like you know, I got the script and I was kind of ready to go. So you met you met Cher for the first time during the readings. I didn't meet her. She okay. So we did this reading. Uh, you know, it's just you know normal stuff at, a, at at music stands in a rehearsal room, just a piano and uh, and, and a drum set. 
at the end of the two weeks, we did a presentation, and the whole purpose of it was to do for share. But you know, share is very specific. She needs very specific circumstances. Um, you know, as someone who's not of the theater world, I think what our uh, our, our lead team did something very smart, which is they put it in, a, in an actual theater. Even that part, even something as basic as a reading, they did in a, in a theater on at the Duke Theater on 42nd. So it was in a theater proper with lights and you know and stadium seating. And she sat all the way in the back. Uh, they snuck her in just before we started. With you know, she had glasses on and the hat. She was just surrounded by her people, and she mm-hmm. literally underneath the spotlight, so we couldn't see her at all. And at the end of it, they whisked her out, right? You know, just as we just as we had finished. And then later, you know, within a day or two, I got the call that that she actually had liked it, and you know, and that then it was going to move forward. And they gave me some preliminary dates of what was going to happen, but I didn't actually meet her un- for a, you know a while because we, a year and a half later in Chicago is when I actually met her. When so, so Chicago was last summer, yes, right? this past summer, yeah, yeah. So so you were workshopping. You did the reading what in January twenty seventeen. Twenty seventeen, yeah. So this actually got to Broadway relatively quickly, yeah. Yeah, I mean, in terms of when they started doing this kind of proper work, I mean, I know one of our producers, Floaty Suarez, has been working on this for many many years, trying mm-hmm. to actually make it happen. But from the moment we did the first reading to now, actually, yeah, that's that's pretty quick. Wow. Yeah, and. Cher, I think, is famously known for being very critical of of her own work and, yeah. and especially of this show. You know, she was there. I think there was an article saying that she was not happy with a preview, um, but <laughs> the show came out extremely well. I loved it. I saw oh, good. Oh, it. I thank you. Absolutely loved it. Thank when you. When you started singing, all the all the people around me were like. What what the heck? what's going on? Like this guy, <laughs> he is Sonny Bono. <laughs> it was incredible. Like the murmurs that 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 perifer- proliferated throughout the audience when you started singing the first time was were incredible. I love to experience it. But the greatest review, I think you know what I'm getting into. A tweet from Cher herself. Oh Do yeah, you remember this? I, yeah, if you read it. Yeah, no, no. This will sound strange, but because we all worked so hard to bring him back for the play, he doesn't seem gone. Our life is there on stage. From first, from the first second I saw him, it can make me cry, but can also make me so happy. Jared Spector is so like him. All caps. Hard to explain. I can see him. How did that make you feel when you read that? You know that that was on the anniversary of his death, Ooh. and uh, and when. Yeah, when she wrote it, I mean, I I remember I was like, you know, scrolling on Twitter and I follow Cher because she's hilarious and awesome. And I and I like stopped in the middle of I was like, I you know, I was sitting with my wife and I'm like, babe, you, you, I had to like read it a couple. I was like, you're not going to believe what this says. <laughs> you have to look at this. And uh, it was re- you know, it was very surreal because we actually had just met Chaz the the day before. No, that no that day we had mm-hmm. met Chaz that day because he came on. Uh, the anniversary of, of Sonny's death. I'm not even sure if that was intentional or just he, that's just happened to be the day that he was in town. Um, but he saw it and then, you know, she wrote that tweet and it was all happened very quickly. And um, she's been really wonderful to me um, since I've met her in the moment, you know, she walked into a room, a rehearsal room in Chicago with the whole company and, you know, she's share, you know, she's just got this thing. I mean, you know, sometimes you meet a celebrity and you don't quite understand why they're famous and, but she's, not that person. She is, you sort of get it right away that she's got whatever that thing is, she's got it. And she sort of, she changes the molecules. She changes the energy. And, uh, and then, you know, it, it doesn't hurt that she's always like dressed like a badass, and she's, you know, yeah. it's amazing. And, uh, but she hugged all of us and she hugged me and she, you know, she's pointing me at you, Sonny. And we, you know, we held each other and, you know, she hasn't seen Sonny in 20 years. And mm-hmm. this is one of the most impactful people in her whole, in, in, you know, the entirety of her life. And, so to represent that in some very small 
way uh, for them for for her is uh, is an honor that I you know that I cherish and take very seriously. Yeah, yeah. I I hope she likes it because everyone. I, I whenever anyone asks me what to see, I'm like share show. Yes, prom, I go down my <laughs> list. But yeah, it's it's incredible. I I love the show. Thank you. And um, that moment's really cool. I mean, it's really it's well set up. I mean, it's a very it's. I was gonna. I always say it's a, it's a Rick Ellis special because he and Marshall Brickman, who wrote Jersey Boys, did the same thing in that show. I feel like you wait like 40 minutes to hear Sherry, and by the mm-hmm. time those those chords come in, everyone's going bananas. And by the time you hear Sherry. You know, everyone just goes crazy. Mm-hmm. And this is kind of the same thing. You want to hear I Got You, Babe. If you're going to see a musical about Cher, you've got to hear I yeah. Got You, Babe. And then by the time it comes and everyone just can't wait for it, I think they just, they want to jump in and they want to be on board that we are Sonny and Cher in that moment for the very first time that they sang it on TV in the top of the pops. You yeah. Know? And some of the costumes are actually Sonny's actual shirts, right? Yeah, they gave, I, yeah, I, we had, uh, there was a sort of a hole in my wardrobe. They, they had added, you know, they, as things get tweaked and they were like, okay, we need a new costume. We need a new shirt here. And our, you know, inimitable Bob Mackey did the thing that he does that he that only he would be able to do, which is be like, you know what, I'm gonna call and have him send one of Sonny's shirts, which they did, and then sort of you know retrofitted on me because we're slightly different build. But you know, they they it's amazing wow. to wear his actual shirt. I have a little piece of Sonny on stage at night. That's crazy. Yeah. Do do you um you know with all your acting training, do you find that you're approaching roles like Frankie Valley and and a Sonny Bono and you know Barry Mann like oh they're all real people yeah so but you're originating a role on Broadway <laughs> based on real people so right. uh, do you get trained for that or how how's that process kind of differ from a standard character well I mean I think you know the beginnings of it are always the same, right? It's like you look at the script and you break it down, you know, however you, if you're, you know, a Joseph Campbell and you're like, okay, what is the, you know, who is the protagonist and where do, where does the hero's journey and all that stuff? And where, how do I fit? Am I the antagonist, protagonist? Am I neither? Am I both? Am I some combination of whatever? And then the, it's the next step is like making character choices where this really is, is hugely important because a lot of those decisions are made for you. You know, you can't, decide, okay, it's Sonny Bono, so I'm gonna I'm gonna play him with a British accent. Like, you know, that's not that's not an option. Like, he is a real person that people are gonna come to the theater and expand they have a certain expectation. So a lot of your especially external character choices are made for you. And then the more you research the person like him, you find out things about him. And then Cher tells you little things about him. You know, I remember she said something like, um, I don't know if he'd love every minute of the show, but I know he'd be so happy to be represented up there. And to me, that's very character revelatory, right? I mean, that's that's something about him that you can say, okay, I I sort of I'm a little closer to understanding that person, and that sort of then informs tactical choices and the <laughs> way that he feels about certain things. I mean, there's a line in the show that's pulled directly from her eulogy that's uh, Sonny had the confidence to be the butt of the joke because he created the joke. Now that again, that is so specific. I mean, I know I do not have that kind of confidence, and I talk about this line a lot because I think it's the thing that is. This is the crux of this guy, that he would that he knew what to do. He knew like how to make things work, and he didn't care even if it was humiliating on some level to go out on stage in front of the entire world with your wife, your goddess warrior, rock star beauty wife, who's going to make fun of your height and your ethnicity and your mother and your mustache and your and your garlic, but like. Every single week, I don't know who would want to do that, but he did. <laughs> he knew that it was going to work, and it did, and so he kept doing it. Um, you know, so those kinds of things then go into uh, the way that you, I, for me, analyze scenes and make choices. And then, of course, look, people are coming in, and especially if it's someone as 
visually and orally famous as Frankie Valli, Sonny Bono, you have to fulfill the audience's expectations of who that is, right? I mean, at least to a certain extent, there are moments in the show when I, that I knew had to be nailed. Uh, and I got you, babe, is one of them, mm-hmm. right? I mean, he has to come, he has to sound like, if it didn't sound, if it doesn't sound like the record, it's, you know, the whole moment is lost. So there were a couple of moments in the show that I was like, okay, you have to be able to get that. And there was something about, uh, my wife really helped me with this too, is I'm, you know, I'm a sort of uh, forward-leaning uh, high-energy Northeast Jew. And Sonny Bono is a very laid-back Southern California, born in the Midwest Italian guy. And we just, our bodies are different and our tempos are different and the way we hold ourselves and carry ourselves. So finding that was a whole other thing too. And again, <laughs> it, if it weren't, it's a it's a very, let's say Sonny was fictitious. It's a totally legitimate choice to do him the way he actually is in real life. Or maybe it's totally fair to do him the you know to have his energy very be very much like mine or something entirely different. But because he's real, you have to do that with yeah. his very noodly arms and the way he sits, and the way he sits back, and the way you know he the way he moves, the way he speaks, and he's just got a slightly slower tempo than me, and all of that stuff has to has to be in there, uh, you know. And it's the same with with Frankie Valley. You can't be like I'm going to play Frankie, but like you know with a limp, you know that's not like a thing. You have to do him. <laughs> the way he is because the audience comes in and they want to hear Sherry and can't take my eyes off of you with that cry and that rock growl and that ear piercing glass shattering falsetto that he has. And mm-hmm. if you don't, if you can't do those things and you're not doing, you're not only not doing the show justice, but you're not doing this very real person justice who is alive in that particular mm-hmm. case and is going to come and tell you, you don't sound like me. <laughs> yeah. Um, gosh, I want to keep talking to you for so long, but you have to get to a show here. We're running short on time. <laughs> um, so I want to plug real quick. You, you've you got a show coming up on April 15th at Sony Hall. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Called Con Artists. Yeah. So everyone, where can we get tickets for that? Oh, uh, I think if you just go to Sony Hall, uh, the Sony Hall's website, and you know the or you can go to any of my social media pages uh, on Facebook or Twitter or uh, Instagram, and I have uh, links for for tickets on all of them. Oh, great! Uh, and yeah, and this show is basically is a lot about what we're talking about. You know, I've been trained to imitate people since I was a kid. My parents had me playing, pretending to be Bobby Darren on Star Search when I was six. And they also wanted me to be Barry Manilow because that was their favorite singer. And then, you know, I got a little older and I want I wanted to be Billy Joel. And I, you know, I mean, I've always, my whole life has just, I've just been trying to be these other people, you know, whether I cast myself in them or my parents or, you know, an actual person on Broadway. Great. Well, I, I hope I'll see you on the, on the 15th, April 15th. Um, so, so we have three questions here that I, I always ask people as oh, yeah. closing standards. Very simply, what motivates you? My wife. Doing the best work that I can to make her proud, truly. Wow, I didn't even think that just actually just came out, but it really is true. Um, she, she's, I think she's like the most talented person I've ever known, and she has really high standards. And if I can do good work, if I can do work that she thinks is good, then I know I'm doing it right. That's great. What advice would you give to your younger self and younger people listening now starting out down a similar path? Ooh, yeah. Um, I would say that if it's easy to follow. Oh goodness! You know, it's <laughs> I, I. I'm always conflicted because people ask this, right? What do you What do you tell yourself, or what would you tell my kid? It wants to be on Broadway. My kid wants to blah 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 blah. And you know, and I'm I'd be a hypocrite if I said, well, make sure they finish school because I didn't. But make sure they finish school. I mean, make sure you get an education of so, in some capacity. I guess in my, you know, I, I I could have told myself to maybe go to NYU or go to an acting program instead of to Princeton and try to 
pretend I'm somebody that I'm not because you can always make a career change, but at least I would have maybe enjoyed my life a little more if I had, you know, been indulging in the thing that I had in my heart. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a really difficult business. It's a really difficult life, even when you meet with success. So it's, it, you know, create your own work and find a way to have that emotional armor, find a way to have, to create self-worth and self-love outside of other people's approval which usually means success in terms of being cast in things because, God, there are endless reasons why you won't get a role. Endless. Um, and and the, and the way you, reason you do get a role might be also completely out of your control. So, like, letting your heart and your emotional well-being depend on that is not healthy. So, finding a way to be happy outside of this industry, outside of even if it's your primary career, is, is critical. Hmm. I love that. And last question here. If you could only see one show for the rest of your life, but you could see it as many times as you want, what show would you see? Hamilton. That's two for I'm Hamilton. Sorry. Yeah, I, I yeah. can't. I, it's, it's, it really does everything. I mean, I, you know, there are lots of shows that I could say. I think my parents would probably say Les Miserables, and not just because I was in it, but that's just so sad for so long. Hamilton is fun and exciting, and then it's sad, and it's emotional, and it's cathartic, and the music's badass. I know, I just... That might be trite, but I, I can't think of something I'd want to see more. There you go. I agree. Okay, so we can find you on Twitter and Instagram at Jared Spector and Facebook.com slash Jared Spector. And of course, your solo records, Minor Fall and Major Lift and a little help from my friends are both out. You have your con artist show coming up in Sony Hall April 15th. Get your tickets now. If you want more of me in the theater podcast, you can find me theater underscore podcast also on Instagram and Twitter, Facebook.com slash official theater podcast. Uh, you can write me feedback at the theaterpodcast.com. Write a uh, feedback. Yeah, give, give me some feedback. <laughs> Rate, review, share the word, share the podcast. This is produced by Jillian Hockman. And of course, the music you hear right now, Jukebox the Ghost, friends of ours that are giving us wonderful license to use this wonderful music. Uh, thank you guys. And Jared, again, thank you. This has been so wonderful. Oh, man, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Take a deep breath, make the world a little colorful. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.